1: In the two years since it was set up, the New York Times audio units had some pretty big successes. Just look at The Daily, a 20-odd-minute weekday news show where host Michael Barbaro interviews some of The Times' best journalists about the big stories of the day. In no time at all, The Daily's become one of the most popular podcasts on the planet, with 5 million monthly listeners and annual advertising revenue reported to be worth more than 10 million US dollars. Meanwhile, the ten-part series Caliphate, which is a detailed look at ISIS and how it works, has been another big hit, with some critics already calling it one of the podcasts of the year. A few of you have also been recommending it to me too via email and Twitter. And a bit like the format of The Daily, in Caliphate, a journalist takes centre stage too, with correspondent Rukmini Kalamaki, shadowed by producer Andy Mills, as they try to establish the credibility of a mysterious potential source. Here's some of it to listen to.
2: Chapter one,
1: The Reporter.
2: Hi, Dana. How you Good. Hey. You got a moment?
3: Uh, yeah, I'm just like... Can you give me five? Can you be back there?
2: I'll just uh, I'll just meet you in that room yep. with your stuff.
3: Hello, hello. Do you need to bring it closer.
2: Hello. Yeah. Here we go.
3: <clears throat> One, two, three, four,
2: five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten. So, Rook Mm-hmm. before I started following you around all the time. <laughs> <laughs> yes. um, I knew that you were a reporter. Mm-hmm. I knew that you talked to terrorists on the internet. Right. I knew that ISIS was your beat. But I don't think I had any idea what that reporting actually, actually looks, looks like. like. Right, right. Yeah.
3: Hey, Hawk. When you hear that it's outgoing, yeah, outgoing.
2: Like, I didn't know... That- you are going right up to the front lines of the war against ISIS.
3: There's a building that appears to have been
2: airstriped And as the coalition soldiers are pushing ISIS back,
3: have these buildings been cleared?
2: Hi, you are right there, directly behind them. What are you doing right now?
3: I'm trying to get out some trash bags. We're about to go into the building.
2: And you pull out garbage bags.
3: Hang on, stick it here.
2: Like trash bags that you've brought from home. <laughs> and you just start picking stuff up. A bunch of computers
3: Hard drives yanked out
2: Like garbage out of buildings This is So we basically game. have a ISIS nice stamp right here
3: So we're in the right place
2: And when I tell people about that part of your job mm-hmm. They almost always ask two questions First There's a backpack right there and I really want to search it But I'm a little scared to put my hand inside it Isn't that dangerous? It could be bo- booby trapped, huh? Could be And I'm always like, yes, <laughs> like, very dangerous There are explosions That's close And Gunfire. Hey, smoke. You see this? And airstrikes. How
3: many airstrikes have you Three or four. Three
2: or four? Try like ten. And the other question they ask is, how is that worth it? Right. Like, what what do you say to that?
3: So look, every reporter that covers conflict and war knows that you have to be there. You have to be on the ground if you want to try to understand the story. And as for me, I'm trying to understand ISIS. And one thing I've learned is that if you're able to get to the buildings that they occupied right after they are liberated, and I mean right after.
2: Rukmini, can you describe what you're doing?
3: Well, we're in a, um, in a room off the side of a church that ISIS had used as a base. I'm looking at a notebook here. You often can find the documents that they left behind. Look at this one. It's a little diary. It's like day by day. These are not documents that are meant for publication. So look, this is where they slept. This is a prayer mat. And then over there, these are the rockets that they they manufactured. Yeah. Imagine if you walked into my home right now, right? If you walked in right now, you would probably find my Bank of America statement. If you found that, you would find all of my daily transactions. You would know what diet I have. You would know that I have a penchant for buying a certain kind of rice milk. Uh, You would know the stores that I go to shop at. So you might conclude from that that I'm probably middle class. If you walked over to the bookshelf, you would find books in Romanian, in English, and in French. And you could deduce from that that I most likely speak three languages or that members of my family are bilingual or trilingual. If you went upstairs and you went into my bedroom and you found my diary, you would find my most private thoughts.
2: And you're saying yep. you do that And so to ISIS. I do that.
3: So I am doing that to ISIS and Al-Qaeda. <laughs> okay. <laughs> right. I am looking for ISIS's diary. I am looking for their internal correspondence, their receipts, their personal tiffs with coworkers, some of which end up getting sent to the equivalent of
2: ISIS HR. Mm-hmm. Um, the things they're struggling with, that they're writing letters back and forth about. And so the documents are generally what you are using yeah. to answer this question, who are we really fighting?
1: Yeah.
3: You, you drove to Syria w- yeah. with your friend from Bremen,
0: yeah. right? I thought to myself, we'll go down there, I live under Sharia.
3: Of course, I'm a journalist, so I also want to talk to them.
0: They said we need people who uh, are willing to give their life, especially in suicide mission.
3: That's incredibly difficult, but I've been able to speak to around two dozen of them, both in prisons in Europe. What did he do before ISIS came here? And in jails in both Syria and Iraq.
2: He worked four months with them as a mechanic.
3: Those interviews have been crucial for me in understanding the general framework of how ISIS works and the motivations that push people to join them. But many of those interviews have also left me frustrated.
0: They tied him and put him, bent him over his chair. Because... And he chopped off his head.
3: The overwhelming pattern is that they'll have witnessed an execution. They'll have witnessed a beheading. They'll have been present when a stoning took place. When you saw those things, did you feel sick to your stomach? What was your reaction?
0: I was shaky because I was shocked.
3: But they never took part in it themselves. It seems to me that many times along the way, you said no. Yeah. They weren't getting suspicious of you yeah, at this they were, point?
0: They were, they were all looking at me and were asking me, why are you here then?
3: Over and over, this is the story they tell.
2: When they did so, he said, I don't want to work with you anymore. So he, he quits.
3: They were a cook. They were a driver. They were a translator. So Bashir, do you want to tell me what really happened? Or do you not want to be interviewed at all? They present themselves as having been witnesses to horror but never having carried out the horror themselves. I've, I've lost interest because he's contradicted himself so many times that I just can't tell that anything he's saying is true. That's usually how it goes.
1: Usually. The story told in Caliphate isn't all played out overseas either. With Islamic State's influence spreading, it can take place closer to home too.
3: So... I don't usually scare easily, but in 2015, I get a phone call from the FBI. Are you uh, Mr. Kamini Kalimaki? Yes, I am. Uh, May I come to see you right now? I can be at your office in the next 20 minutes. And we went into a conference room, not far from here, and um, the agent read a prepared statement. He said, you are the subject of a targeted threat from the Islamic State, and we can't tell you more. That was the first serious threat. But it started to percolate, you know, somewhere that they were noticing what I was doing. Since then I've seen how I've become a presence in their online chat rooms. They talk about my reporting, they dissect my tweets. They sometimes insult me. And these insults, if I can, if I can just say so, sometimes are pretty funny. I think they figured out that I'm sensitive about my weight. So they sometimes call me oink Mini instead of rook mini. It's oink meanie like pig. Fat mochi. <laughs> oink meanie, fat mochi. I'm sorry to laugh. <laughs> so i because I'm, i I mean, there's something ironic about being fat shamed by ISIS, you know? <laughs> so um, you know, they'll they'll make jabs about how I've put on a couple of pounds based on my latest, you know, TV appearance. But then sometimes what they say is dead serious. So, for example, when I was in Mosul a couple of months ago, they started talking about how they were hoping that I would get killed in Mosul, just like the Kurdish journalist who was killed there at the same time uh, in the city. Hmm. Uh, But then let's see, what are the others? Um,
2: Do you have like a folder on your phone where you keep the threats? Is that what I'm looking at here? Yeah, exactly. Exactly.
3: One of them is a masked man who was holding up a knife that he's pointing towards the camera. And he said, um, under a picture of me, wanted to be killed this crusader woman that refuses to join to Islam, Rukmini Kalimaki. Please join to religion before beheading or truck from our soldiers of Islamic State. OK, pretty explicit. Um, uh, so, so they created a channel where they're pretending to be me. And then they're pretending to post in this channel as me. And it says, I I have to confess something here. I started covering ISIS because they are real men. I always fantasize about getting raped by them. That's all my fantasies. This is the sole reason I made multiple trips to Mosul, just to get captured by ISIS so that they can uh, fulfill my desires. So I'm used to this stuff now. But back when the FBI first came, it didn't really sink in. It was so unbelievable that honestly, I just... I think I just stored it away somewhere else. And then weeks went by. There was another
2: apparent terror attack in Europe, this time in Germany. And months went by. A
3: series of deadly bombs, at least one packed with nails, killing dozens, injuring hundreds. And in that period of time, I covered attack after
1: attack. Two terrorists stormed the church during morning mass, taking a priest, two nuns, and two churchgoers hostage. And a planned and deliberate attack in suburban Sydney.
3: It starts to just marinate. In your consciousness.
0: Yeah. German media reports the attacker shouted Allahu Akbar as he hacked at the passengers.
3: And then about a year later, I was home alone late at night. So I'm home alone, and I'm by myself because at this point in time, my husband was working the overnight at his company. At 12.30, I think, at night, I'm getting ready to go to bed. I'm I'm actually under the covers, uh, and I'm upstairs with my two dogs. And suddenly, my Rhodesian Ridgeback, which is a big dog, starts growling. The hair on his back is straight up. Immediately afterwards, I start hearing somebody ringing the doorbell downstairs. And they're ringing continuously. So it's not like it's not like knock knock and then go away. It's like, you know, knock knock knock. I'm thinking to myself, what is this? You know, like like you know, who who is this? What is this? So I get a hold of my my husband, who assures me that it's not him. At this point, I've turned off the lights in the second floor bedroom because I don't want the people who are outside to see where I am. So the dog is barking, the knocking is going on, and the doorbell is ringing and ringing and ringing. At this point, I'm so scared that, like, my hands are not even working.
1: 911, where is your emergency? Uh,
3: yes, ma'am. Uh, I- I'm sorry to bother you. I don't know if this is an emergency. So the FBI agent who had come to see me had told me that they had alerted. The particular police precinct uh, where I lived, he said, if you ever have, you know, any issues, all you have to do is call 911. They have you on a list. We'd rather that you call um, rather than waiting for, you know, for something to happen. My name is Rukmini Kalimaki, and I've had direct threats against me and my family. But Ma'am, where is your emergency? But yes. the operator who picked up must have thought I was crazy. OK, so you're being, the FBI is making threats against you, is what you're saying? No, I saw Did you see anyone? I was afraid to go up. I was afraid to show myself. Like, I just saw the silhouette of a person. And I can't remember exactly what the woman said, but it was something like, ma'am, are you trying to tell me that ISIS is ringing your doorbell?
2: Okay, I'll send an officer over to talk to you. Thank you so much, ma'am. Thank You're you. welcome. Bye-bye.
3: So she calls me back and she says, ma'am, um, I am calling to tell you that we've investigated. And it happens to be Um, the the water department, there's been a water main break on your street, and as a result of this, they're going house to house to tell the neighborhood that your toilet is not going to flush.
2: What do you think the the moral of that story is now?
3: What's the moral of that story?
2: Like, why is it that that's the story you chose to tell me when I asked you if you've ever been afraid?
3: I guess the story illustrates how... (laughs) I got ensnared into the very thing that ISIS is trying to do, because in the end, the the purpose of these acts of savagery and violence are to terrorize us. Mm. They're trying to scare us, right? They're trying to make themselves into boogeymen and live in our imagination. And that night-
2: yeah, They got you.
3: They got me that night. Yeah
1: some of chapter one of Caliphate called The Reporter. And that reporter, Rukmini Kalamaki, and the show's producer, Andy Mills, spoke to me about the role of audio storytelling in journalism and why the New York Times first set up a dedicated audio unit about two years ago.
2: The idea was that uh, the New York Times has these amazing stories that it's doing every single day and more and more people are into podcasts and I think there was a part of, uh, of it that's just like very simple where like a lot of other <laughs> podcasts would essentially be building podcast episodes out of reporting that the New York Times had done. And it seemed that there's like a lot of great stories that are actually in our newspaper every day that would be great podcasts, that would be great stories for a person to listen to, but that that there was just a divide there. And so they they brought in a bunch of outsiders like myself and we were tasked essentially with just trying to figure out like, what should the New York Times sound like in this moment, especially in history uh, that we're living in in the United States? Like, what is it that the New York Times should sound like? And we didn't exactly know what that was going to be. And, and what you hear in Caliphate, um, some of that is, is, is the creation and, and the wisdom that we gained out of creating our kind of main ship podcast, which is The Daily. And in The Daily and in Caliphate, we are trying to tell the great stories of our time that the New York Times reporters are reporting on, but we're also doing this other thing where we're kind of pulling back the curtain a little bit on the reporting process, in part just because it's rather fascinating and they are kind of detective stories once you get down to it, but also in part because, like, I mean, my soapbox is always that, that we're living through a time when, when a lot of people don't trust the media. There's a lot of talk in the U.S. right now about, the mainstream media and being careful what kind of uh, narrative they're trying to spin. And one way that you can just show trust is just to show your cards, to show your work, to say like, look, here's what goes into that story that was in the newspaper today. And here's all the work and all the research and all the fact checking that went into us publishing that one sentence, mm-hmm. um, that one fact. Yeah. Uh, and we've, we've kind of just been kind of building on that. We, 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 every single day we try and do that about what's the big story of the day. And then with these bigger projects like Caliphate, we kind of say, like, what are the big stories of the year? And and, and dive into that.
1: I'm wondering, Rukmini, how does making a podcast and having Andy there with recording equipment, does that change how you behave or how you can report in the field?
3: Interestingly, I don't think it did. Um I've I've worked with Andy, I've also worked with a couple of TV crews. When you have a camera that is really disruptive because it's so obvious and people are aware of it and never forget that it's there. Andy, because of his his sweet nature, is already the kind of person that just melds with the surrounding, right? And so it just felt like I had a reporting partner uh, on this trip. And as somebody who usually goes on these trips alone, it was really wonderful to have somebody to be able to share it with.
1: And he plays a really important role too, I think, in that he... He's kind of our surrogate, isn't he, in the field with you? Because a lot of what you're saying, you regard probably as a normal part of your daily working life, but he's the guy exactly. who's on our behalf, going, look, what what, 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 why are you doing that? What are you doing? That,
3: that's a, that's exactly it. That's exactly it. And there's there's so many times when, of course, I'm aware that I have to describe things to a lay public, but there were so many times when Andy was like, wait a second, explain this to me, and 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 I would forget that the thing I'm seeing was actually quite unusual and that it needed to be broken down for people to, to really grasp what was, what was
2: going on. This is a key thing that I've learned in my career is that you don't have to be the smartest person in the room when you're, this, when, when you're doing this job. You can really, like, your, your ignorance can be uh, helpful mm-hmm. if you just admit that you don't know what's going on and, and, and um, the listener often appreciates it. And this is something that we actually got great feedback on at The Daily, mm-hmm. and so we leaned into more and more with Caliphate which is that people actually really respond well when they hear the sound of a journalist getting mm-hmm. in over their head, a journalist stumbling upon something that is genuinely confusing to them, mm-hmm. and hearing a journalist say something like, I don't know what to do. Um, it goes back to the thing I was saying, where like we, we're living at a time when it's hard to know who to trust, and sometimes you trust the person who will admit what they don't know.
3: Th- this has been actually part of my learning curve as a journalist, when I was younger and just starting out in this profession, you would start to report a story. And you would find a bunch of facts that lined up with whatever theory you started to pursue. And then you would have a couple of things, you know, that didn't line up. And when I was, you know, much younger in this profession, long before I joined the New York Times, I thought that the thing that I should do was to essentially ignore those things that that didn't line up with my theory and kind of Cherry pick the narrative so that it, so that it was cohesive. And I've learned, as I've come into my own in this profession, that in fact, I, I think that you signal integrity to your listeners and to your readers by flagging what you don't know and what doesn't fit, what doesn't fit, you know the the prevalent theory of of whatever it is that you're that you're reporting. And we really le- leaned into that in Caliphate. It was scary at times. I mean, to basically tell people, we're not a hundred percent sure that that this guy is telling the truth, right? But in fact, readers, really uh, listeners, I should say, responded really positively to that because I think that we were honest with them about what we know and what we don't know. You often have a lot, you know, a, a bunch of things you can confirm. And then there's, especially with isis, in in the case of ISIS, there's an enormous other area where you just can't because of the nature of, of this having happened inside of a war zone where reporters could not go without getting kidnapped and killed.
1: Rukmini Kalamaki and producer Andy Mills from The New York Times. And you can find more information about Caliphate and how to listen to it on our website right now.
0: Head over to Hulu this March, where our new shows and movies will keep you streaming all month long